Hey there, this is Jason and Paul, and we encourage you to follow us on Instagram at stateofloveandtrust underscore pod, where we can continue the conversation with you. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get to the show. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast, and I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi. And alongside me, as always, is Paul Gilliari. Paul, I'm coming to you from my bathroom this week. I love it. I applaud this. I approve this. And the greater soul of John Bonham approves of this as well. Yeah, so you you'll notice. why? Because when the levee breaks... Is happening as we speak yeah. on on this episode. I don't even I don't know the number, Jason, of this episode, but this is the episode where we break the levy. It's episode fifty nine. There you go. And episode yeah, fifty nine. If you if if you notice an extra bit of reverb tonight, it's because I'm in the bath. I'm not actually going to the bathroom. I'm just in the bathroom because that was the available uh, domicile or uh, uh, what's the what's the Spanish word for room. Quarto. Quarto. <laughs> there you go. And I, I knew it was there somewhere. Um, before we go any further, of course, please um, get on your platform of choice, uh, your podcast thingy that you use, application, and give us Rate, a review. Review, subscribe, channel the spirit of John Bonham and say, yes, I approve of Jason recording in a bathroom. Please talk about me recording in the bathroom. That should be the first line. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and then we'll feature it next week on the show. You should. Speaking of, of that, featuring, are, are there, do we have any, <laughs> what a segue, do we have any, uh, any new feedback, Jason, that we no, can, no, none this week, Paul. Okay. That's okay. I like to uh, adopt a growth mindset. And so mm. I'm always looking for our listeners to let us know how we can get better at what we do because that's or, the only way. Or what we do do. Or what we do do. Exactly. Based on where I'm sitting. <laughs> okay. People he went disgusted. there. He went there. Yeah, you know, I, I got a 13-year-old brain. Moving um, on. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we've talked about this before, the, the T-shirt contest, done and dusted. Uh, we have a, a gentleman who is um, in the works as we speak, designing a really cool T-shirt that I will wear at Ohana Festival this September. Um, if you see it, well, we'll post it online beforehand, of course. And then if you see me at the show, I'll be, please come up and say hi and you know, if people like it, maybe we'll, I don't know, maybe we'll put it out there to, to acquire, but you know, yeah. for right now it's, it's a, it's a one-off and it's, it's the come find Jason t-shirt. And we're very yeah. excited to see what this gentleman has for us. So um, be on the lookout, follow the social channels, state of love and hey, trust underscore on Instagram to follow that. Yes. Go ahead, Paul. My question to you yes. is what color do you want the shirt to be? Cause we've had these conversations mm. about, about the graphic and, and I'm, I'm liking where this is going, but something tells me that a lot of folks are going to notice you from behind and they're going to say, wait a minute, that's a red shirt or that's a yellow shirt or it's a sapphire shirt that that might be him. That might be our guy. So we, we kind of have to eventually decide on a color and then I, let, I think let our Paul, listeners know. I, I've kind of been leaning towards a, uh, toward a sky blue. Okay. Because as my computer just alerted me, I have to back up my computer. No, um, that, that's true. But I think a, a blue might be, might be nice considering Ohana, ocean, the beach, you know, that whole thing. And see here now on the other side of the country, sea, 
you know, so that's, that's the motion of the ocean. That's the, that's the style of the times in September is aquatic Pearl Jam. So perhaps that's the way we go. I don't know. All right. So we're leaning towards the blue. Once we decide on the color folks. Yes. Those of you who plan on being there at Mm -hmm. data point, you will know the color and you will, you, you will look for our good friend, Jason Carapesi. Maybe I'll put like, you know, find Jason here with an arrow. <laughs> Terrible t-shirt <laughs> idea. I'll never do that. Um, let's go through some some news, some current events. Current events. That was my impromptu jingle. Um, we have, we have um, very mindfully uh, missed a few things in the news. But we're going to put them all together here. So the first thing I want to talk about is our friend Dave Eberzee's Chiming in, playing rearview mirror with a gaggle of French fans. Paul, what are your thoughts on this? I have many a thought. Please, so we've got time. There's a, a UK band that I have a great affinity for. They're called Bears Den. And they, they, they released a track last year called Laurel Reef. And they put it together. It, it was called the Lockdown Fan Collaboration. And uh, they, they took this studio version of the song and they invited fans to contribute various video segments. And they, they put together this lovely collage and you watch this video. And at the time, it was incredibly special to me as a, uh, a fan of the band because I was able to feel this, this synergy that was absent during this pandemic where we could not go bond with each other over our shared love of music in a live setting. And, and this particular song, which I'm not, I'm not going to get into the lyrical content and, and how it speaks to, I think some of the larger themes and motifs that a lot of us were dealing with at the time, which in many respects contributed to the, 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 the genesis of what I think led to that video. But what Dave did here with rearview mirror, I thought was fascinating because it's, it's produced in a very similar vein where you have a variety of very, passionate Pearl Jam fans that contributed to the presentation of this video. And so Dave's there on the drums and you get a legitimate um, live performance, if you will, of this song. And uh, I thought it was really, really cool. I thought it was exceptional. I thought it was a wonderful way for Pearl Jam's fans to interact with the band in a way that was was uh, organic that we had never seen before outside of a live setting. I mean, certainly you go to a Pearl Jam show and the band will make very conscious efforts to involve you in the performance of whatever song it may be. It might be Pendulum. It might be Alive. I mean, there's so many wonderful examples of, uh, you know, fans singing the, the verse and chorus of Better Man. And I love all those. But there was something really cool about Dave as the drummer just kind of leading the beat and then the fans coming in behind it. And it's the background of the song. Exactly. And and as a drummer, you're, you're literally producing the, I say beat, obviously. I mean, that that's the literal interpretation, but you're, you're producing the blueprint and then everybody builds on that blueprint and, and, and the architecture the form follows the function and you get this lovely organic rendition of something that's, that's so collaborative and, and communal. And it's one of the few renditions that I can honestly say I've heard of this song that felt um, 
fresh, which I don't yeah. mean that in a critical way because I, 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 it's one of my favorite songs off of verses and I, I love every live version of it, but there was something about this particular version that I thought really stood out. And I don't say that because of the obvious absence of all the other members of the band. I say that in the sense that it was the approach taken to produce the song in a new way that we had never heard before, not because they changed things sonically, but because they invited people and the connections they had to that song. And it wasn't a bunch of folks from Seattle or uh, even from LA where you and I are based out of it. There was that, uh, that global awareness. I don't know. I, the whole thing I thought was just very organic and um, very much, in tune with the spirit of what this track is really about. And, and we've diagnosed this track ad nauseum mm-hmm. in earlier episodes of our podcast. So we don't need to necessarily remind that territory, but I really appreciate the overall communal effect of the song. If you have not yet heard this version of Rearview mirror where Dave's on the drums and he invites fans to contribute, uh, I think visually you will appreciate it. Uh, you you cannot listen to, to an audio cut of this. You have to watch it. <laughs> yes. You really, really do. It's uh, I will I will add it to the show notes so you will be able to go in there and, and click the link if you haven't already watched it already. Um, the first thing I thought of was Dave still got it. He, he certainly he, does. <laughs> he still nails that song. And as is you just, said, I got to ask: Is it just me, or I love the reunion? aspect you know getting dave cruz and matt chamberlain mm-hmm. I'm, i've seen there's something about that there's a hatchet that's got to be buried here yeah because i just as as a fan of the band that dave's contributions to what pearl jam was in its heyday cannot go understated and and there is an amazing amount of love that gets attributed to matt cameron justifiably so and this band might not exist in its current form obviously without Matt Cameron's contributions, but it's unfortunate the way Dan, I'm sorry, Dave was, was uh, asked to leave the van. And, and I understand at the time that the context of that situation may have resulted in the longevity of the band that we love and appreciate today. That being said, that doesn't have time to, to figure mitigate. This out. Yeah. yeah. That, that doesn't have to mitigate his contributions. I'd like to think that enough time has elapsed where they can get together again with him and, and do something special. Well, you and, thought and, that would have happened in 2017 at the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing. Obviously, yeah, there was still something there because they didn't invite him, even though Ed did say, oh, we have a great drummer. We had a great drummer, Dave. Blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, that's nice. But um, yeah, it, it's, it, it'd be really cool if you know sometime soon they could say, hey, here's a... Uh, a new rendition of VH1 Storytellers, and we're going to inv- invite Dave to play on a. On a we're going to invite Dave Cruson to play on a ten song, Dave Eberzies to play on a versus song, Jack Irons yeah. to play on a no code song, and yeah. Matt does everything else. That would be really cool. Agreed. Um, I don't know that's going to happen, but you know we can dream, I suppose. Nah. But um, coming back to this real quick, just to wrap it up. Um, it was. I, th- I mean, I think you said it perfectly. It was. This is the kind of song that people do find communion around and obviously there are many songs that the band um and and the fan base uh feels like that um with many songs but this one 
there's just something, there's some sort of catharsis. And we mentioned it before on our lyric of the week episode. I don't know how long ago it was. There's just there's an outpouring and there's a there's a there's a coming together and an empathy and a in a and a catharsis. And I think you have, you know, the 30 some odd musicians and singers playing along with Dave. I don't think you can do this kind of song with any other instrumentation. It has to be the drummer leading the charge and being the constant. And the fact that it's Dave playing that song in a very Dave way, um, it was phenomenal. I was I was very into it. I thought it was great. Even if some of the singers and players weren't amazing at what they did, it didn't matter because the passion came through and the whole thing just came together and was stitched together very nicely. So kudos to to that uh, that fan group out there in France for putting this together. And if any of you are listening, then kudos to you directly. Um, that was fantastic. Let us move on then to another rendition of a of a Pearl Jam related song, and that is Hunger Strike. What happened with Hunger? Well, I'll tell you what happened with Hunger Strike. Our friends Chris Daughtry and Lejean Witherspoon did a cover of this song. Chris did the Chris Cornell part. Lejean did the Eddie Vedder part. Um, let me. I got just a few things to say about this before I think you're going to really kind of tear into Daughtry because I know you like him so much. <laughs> the, for me, the music is is fairly stock, but that's okay. I'm into it. The, the heavy parts are a little bit heavier because it is Daughtry and Lejean, so it kind of makes sense. Um, Daughtry has such a smooth and sultry take on Cornell's strained delivery in the beginning, and I, and I kind of like it. It makes it his own. I love the Lejean part. I love him, that he's singing Ed. I've always been a huge Seven Dust fan, so I really appreciate him coming here. I know, I know him and Daughtry are, are, are friends. So this is an easy, um, easy partnership. It's an easy collaboration. Uh, yeah, and, I, and I've actually enjoyed these two together before Daughtry guested on a song, on a Seven Dust song called The Past about 10 or so years ago. Now, you might wonder how Daughtry would handle the high-pitched Cornell parts, but he does it with a plum. And it's an interesting uh, choice to go with a guitar solo in the interlude and not the vocals um, that Chris usually has, but I don't mind it. I think it's a decent solo. I think it makes the song a little bit more unique to these two guys. And if you were wondering about, can he really pull off the Cornell stuff? Well, at the three and a half minute mark is where we get confirmation that Chris Daughtry can handle the guy. Yeah, he's, he's got a false <laughs> So kudos to everyone here. I think it's a fantastic cover. I think Lejean did great. I think Chris did great. And it's not an easy song to do. So, No, it's not. I, I, I second everything you just said. Look, I, I, I may not be the biggest fan of Chris Daughtry's ori original music. Um, that, that, that's not a criticism. I, I think that he, he... I'm glad he has a platform and an opportunity to create music. I think it's wonderful that American Idol provided him with the opportunity for his voice to be discovered and that granted him the platform to kind of have the creative and expressive freedom to do what he loves. Uh, that being said, you know, his ability to cover music from this era, uh, he he's, he's very talented. His voice. I mean, if, if, if he had, if he was making music at the time, you know, mm. early nineties, mid nineties. I don't know how he doesn't find himself being, being one of those voices, you know, uh, that, that we all look back on and remember as, as kind of part of the iconic defining voices of the era. I wonder what his, his sound would have been like, because coming up in the early two, early to mid two thousands, 
this style was more of the, I don't want to say new metal, but it was heavier hard rock. It wasn't as uh, well, it was post grunge is what we called it in sure, the early 2000s. Sure. And so you had a lot of bands like Creed and Seether and so on that were producing Nickelback that were producing music that felt derivative to what mm-hmm. we had had experienced in the early to mid nineties and late nineties with bands like fuel and so on. Um, but he didn't have like the Brett Scallion snarl that you get with fuel. I mean, there, there, there's something about Daughtry's delivery that it, it's, it's, there's a certain top 40 pop quality that's well, hence why his he was vocal on delivery, Hunter. right? Which, mm-hmm. and, and again, this is not a criticism. It's just, I don't know if he consciously sings this way. He, he's so authentic and soulful in the way he sings that I'm reluctant to say, that there's a, um, a premeditated purpose behind that. So, and I've gone on record on this podcast numerous times. I, I truly believe his live renditions of black are some of the best you will find. Some of the most authentic, heartfelt, uh, outstanding vocal deliveries of what I think is a very difficult, complicated song to sing. And uh, I think that the performance here of Hunger Strike is both admirable and uh, exemplary on a lot of levels, all of which you've already enumerated. And so if you haven't heard this version, those of you listening right now, I highly encourage you to check it out. Even if you're not a Daughtry fan, give it a listen. I think that uh, it, I think it'll surprise you. It surprised me as somebody who Mm -hmm. already has a great appreciation for his vocal range. I, 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 he actually hit some notes that I had not heard. I didn't think you could before. get those high parts. Yeah. So it, By the it way, was, I don't it, think it was possible. I think he actually sang those at um, the end, which is incredible. Yeah, right. I mean, it, he, he's, a, he's a heck of a vocal talent. Well, I, I will also list this, um, this uh, Hunger Strike cover in the notes of the show, so you'll have easy access as well. Yeah. The last bit of news I want to get to was an article this past week in Variety with our friend Jeff Ament. Jason, what really stood out to me in this interview is when they asked Jeff, okay, you guys are going to play it live in September. It's the first time in three years. How are you preparing for this? I mean, it's a loaded question. This is a band that I think makes records to play live. They've they've gone on record as saying as such. So Jeff comes out and says, and I'm I'm quoting him here. This is from the Variety interview. We're going to try to come up with 50 or 60 songs that we remember. And he laughs. laughs. We rehearsed the Gigaton songs before our tour got postponed last year, but we hadn't refreshed on older material. Almost every time I get in the car, I'll go over to Sirius to see what they're playing on the Pearl Jam station, which I loved. I love the fact that he gets on the car. Love he the listens plug. to his own band's you know, station. And he makes a game out of it. He says, I made a game out of it. Light years. Okay. That starts in D just try to get a visual of what that song is and wake up that muscle memory. Three years is a long time. Some of that muscle memory could be gone, which could be good. It could force us to play songs in different ways, which I would love as a fan of the music, but also, you know, for the purposes Mm. of our podcast, you know, we have a segment called do the evolution Mm -hmm. where we talk about how they reinvent songs live. And so I'm super excited about the opportunity that we might hear, older Pearl Jam tracks reinvented and reimagined in ways that we had not heard before. sounds like that's already a wavelength that uh, Jeff has tapped into. He says, uh, it'll be fun. We have to get the Gigaton songs back into shape. And then there'll probably be another week of touching on 50 or 60 songs just to come up with a couple of set lists for these two shows. But he 
he, he adds on to that because the next question said, it must've been such a disappointment to release Gigaton and then not be able to perform the new material live. And what stood out to me here, I'm just going to skip here. Jeff says, we're always surprised when a song that isn't one of the leading candidates turns into a really fun one to play. Quick Escape is an obvious one that could really stretch out life. I'm excited about River Cross, which is one of my favorite things we've ever done and one of my favorite songs Ed has ever written. It was really outside of our normal instrumentation, and it's such a beautiful song. I think that will go over really well live. It's no secret, those of you listening, River Cross is a track that has not necessarily resonated with Jason nor myself. I can't wait to hear this song live because... If there's an opportunity to connect with the Pearl Jam track, I want to take that. I want to seize that opportunity. And it sounds to me like, you know, obviously Quick Escape is a track that I've, I've you know, sung its praises numerous times on this podcast. But I'm, I can't wait to hear these tracks live. In the, and I'm going to harken back to the conversation we had about uh, Lightning Bolt where we talked about various tracks with lightning bolt and how some of those songs seem to hit live in ways like infallible was the one that, that I right. keep going back to it, it. There's something about it live that I don't get that experience hearing it in the studio. So what do these songs sound like live? We don't know the closest approximation we have and my, oh my, are we blessed to have them is the outstanding renditions of these songs that we have from great cover bands and, and original, outstanding artists, I, I, calling them cover bands does them a disservice. Bands like Black Circle down in Brazil, uh, bands like Red Mosquito, and, and Jason, you, you can keep the laundry list going here. There's, there's Ten, so many. Metallurgy, Corduroy. Metallurgy, Corduroy, all these great bands that have produced Pearl Jam's music in ways that allow us to keep hearing their music in fresh, current renditions. Um, in the absence of our ability to see them live. So when Jeff talks about their own excitement to play these songs live, I can't wait to hear what Gigaton sounds like live because if infallible is a barometer for what we have to expect as a song that felt somewhat overproduced on the album, but then live just absolutely cut through you as somebody standing on the floor. What does quick escape sound like? What does, um, buckle up sound like what does what does can retrograde take us to even higher heights than the album version already does so many questions so little time i can't wait to hit up a live pearl jam show that was one of the biggest things for me too is um how well one how will they play these songs live and and, and we've talked about that many times before but like you know are you nervous because you want it to sound like the album or are you nervous that you want it to sound different to the album are you excited for one of those two avenues i i just want it to happen i mean whatever it is i'm open to man. yeah that's, I, that's... I think you you think you have to be open to it right yeah. um and and we're talking about how they're going to relearn songs and the ones that have escaped their muscle memory as you mentioned um from, from jeff saying that that's interesting too i mean how many of the songs have not escaped their muscle memory versus ones that haven't that, you know, 60 songs for two shows. That's, that's two different cells completely. Uh, and I love this idea as a separate episode for you and I to guess, are there songs <laughs> Yeah, to, No, not to guess if, if we could, if we had the opportunity to suggest to them songs mm-hmm. to relearn oh. three or four or even five songs that you would say, 
God, I'd love to hear this in a new way. I mean, it, somebody, well, you know, mark it, it down. T- take Garden, for example. We've heard Garden with a new intro. We've heard WMA played in different ways. Those are great examples of songs that you and I have covered on our Do the Evolution segment on this podcast. If we had the opportunity to suggest to the band, here are five songs, just sit down, relearn this, adapt that muscle memory. What does this sound like coming out new? What would those be? I don't know. I, I'd love to. I'd love to explore that. I've, I've added it to the show possible episodes. Note. Like so that that'll be coming up. Um, I think the one other thing I want to take away from this article is just Jeff talking about um, getting back out there in general and just being, um, I guess, mindful but also hesitant but also excited about getting back out there in general. And he talks about how. He doesn't see them playing arenas by the end of the year, unfortunately, because he knows how many fans do travel from other parts of the country. And he actually men- mentions um, something very topical in that, you know, we have a lot of Brazilian fans and they like to travel. And if let's say 50 of them come to one of these shows and a couple of them don't know that they have COVID. And even though most people in our audience probably are vaccinated at this point, it's a chain reaction and we don't want to feel responsible. And I can understand that as low as the risk probably is at this point. Um, And Hey, uh, Foo Fighters are opening Madison square garden like any minute now in New York. So there are ways to do it right. But I don't think people travel necessarily as, as much for Foo Fighters as they would for Pearl Jam. And I think in the back of their mind, the variable is, is Ross killed they felt a sense of, um, for lack of a better phrase, like blood on their hands, responsibility of that moment. And so they're a little gun shy. And so I can see them being like, let's just, let's just play it extra, 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 extra safe. You know, it'll be basically two years since the shows would have happened, but let's just pump the brakes. And as frustrating as that is, we are getting two shows this year. They're going to have to relearn some shit. Let's take the little breadcrumbs that we get and really enjoy it and sink our teeth in. And, um, Yes, I'm very excited. <laughs> so let's get to the main portion of the show today. And this is an interesting one. We do a lot of top five things, right? I think there's interesting ways. People love lists, first of all. So that's that's an obvious reason why you would do these kinds of things. But also because there are these are topics that are not necessarily the most obvious things that you would have lists about. Um, right. Some of them, like this, are... Why would you even think about it? Because... Eh, best singles now when i say singles i mean the complete package so we did do something similar to this about a year ago where we did um best fan club singles and that was hey which year's physical disc or or total package of a's and b sides did you find to be most compelling so you go through the catalog they've had like what i don't know 30 to 40 singles in total, all with B-sides, some more, some less. One of them is actually an EP, technically. And <laughs> some are stronger than others. Why would you go out and... You used to go out and buy singles all the time in the 90s. Not so much anymore. I guess you would in iTunes, but you don't, there's no B-sides that you really get with that, usually. But what, is, what, what are your favorite, B, what are your favorite uh, singles and why? And uh, we put together a list here. Uh, I'm sure we'll have some honorable mentions as well, and we'll see those at the end. But um, Paul, you want to list off? What, what's, um, what's for you a top five overall single? I think Man of the Hour. It, it, really? I, yeah. Ooh, I, I'm I surprised. It. Well, this is a particular you like song. song. I'm not a huge fan of the song 
mostly because I feel as though I cannot, I have trouble finding a place for it on an album. Great example. Oh, is that why? I I love Hard to Imagine, right? To me, that that should have been in many, again, who am I to tell the band what should have been? You're Paul Gilleary. <laughs> Which is not stool. You're a podcast guy. <laughs> yeah, a mountain of beans. But um, <laughs> I feel as though uh, hard to imagine would have been an absolute stunning closer to Vitology. Man of the Hour exists in its own temporal plane. It was, uh, it, it, I think it is a very wonderful, isolated moment in the Pearl Jam catalog. It was nominated for a 2004 Golden Globe Award for Best hmm. Original Song. Um, That's right. It, it, it you watch Tim Burton's film and it's 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 hard to remember that film without this song. So I I, I Big do Fish, by the way, if you don't know. Right. For, for those of you who haven't seen the Tim Burton film, Big Fish, uh, it, it, you and McGregor, if I recall, mm-hmm. um, that the song itself is a very slow burn song, but I've always felt that this particular single, what I loved about it was that it, it has the demo version of it. And so it's not often Pearl Jam releases a single mm. with a demo version accompanying it. So you can you can listen to the evolution of the song. We've we've received demo versions of songs through unreleased discs or through um kind of box sets like with the the 10 versus box set i'm sorry uh, the 10 box set or the versus vitology box set this was a single where they said hey here's our track and here's the demo version that accompanies it and so i thought it was an interesting vantage point into the creative process of the band with a particular song that that kind of has its its place amongst singles as being that that perfect articulation of of what a single really is, which is not necessarily an extension of an album, but rather, for all intents and purposes, and lack of a better way of phrasing it, a one-off. And that's that's ultimately what this song really is in a lot of ways. And so, I've always appreciated the lamentation of the song. Um, you know, it's it, it's this final bow as it as it as it could be described. Curtain comes down. Yeah, you know, and so I uh, I don't love the track, but I love its place amongst the catalog as a single, and I think that it, it's short-sighted to not appreciate its place amongst the singles and the reception that it received. And, and ultimately, again, and, and, and I'm not afraid to say this because I think it should be said, my subjective interpretation of the song is ultimately, in many respects, irrelevant because... You have to be willing to understand the context surrounding a Pearl Jam track release and the ability to appreciate that context, I think needs, it cannot go understated because just because I like or dislike a song does not necessarily dictate or define its worth within the greater context, context, pardon me, of what the band's music has meant to the greater public. So for me, even though this is not necessarily a song I, I genuinely seek out or play on its own, I think that it would be short-sighted of me to not respect its place as a single within the catalog. Interesting. You did a very good sales job on it. I think you've convinced <laughs> me that it's much higher on the list than it would, would have been. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm still surprised with the number of, number of singles that we have that even though you sold it that well, that it would still crack a five. But anyways, that, that's, that's, that's you, and no, that's not me. Um, 
I'll give you my number five. My number five is Save You. And oh. um, we talked recently about how Save You is not what it appears. And once you really pay attention to the lyrics, um, you really understand that it's not fluff dad punk. It's got some bite and it's got some depth to it. And we've also spoken, uh, and you have a lot, Paul, about Other Side being very underrated. It's a lovely song about death. That, that sounds weird to say. A lovely song about death um, and the pain that that, that causes and, and grieving and, and all of that. And I think this is a single that I probably brushed off at the time as dad plunk, dad plunk, dad punk <laughs> plus snooze equals meh. But not now. Um, I think the single is incredibly strong. I think especially having gone back through Save You a few weeks back, the lyric of the week, I have a a much higher level level of respect for that song that I did not have before. And I think that you sold me on other side. We did a list on, um, it was like Deep Cuss or I forget what it was, um, where we brought up other side. And I said, wow, you know what? You make a great point about other side. I used, I used to really dismiss that song. Um, but you, you know, one of the great things about this podcast that we've heard from some of our listeners is that you go back and you listen to some stuff with a renewed sense of like, hmm, I should give this another shot in another way, for another angle. And so I think that that combination of Save You and Other Side is a fantastic combination and a very, very strong single. Could not agree more. What do you got it for? I'm going to go with Not For You. Mm. Uh, you know, th- this comes out in 1995. What I loved about this song is the general um, advocacy of youth. This idea that, and, and I'm quoting it here, Eddie said, I believe that there's something sacred about youth and the song is about how youth is being sold and exploited. I think I felt like I had become part of that too. And this song and many, you know, it's funny how often people talk about Corduroy as the defining song of phytology and, and, and this greater representation of Pearl Jam. I feel like "Not for You" was a far more direct statement oh, about yeah. Courtney. You know what I mean? And and if you think back to uh, some of the performances, the SNL performance and uh, the the MTV Music Awards performance of of these songs, it, it, they could not have been more pointed. <laughs> and uh, this particular song to come out as a single, what I loved about it, in addition to its place amongst the catalog and, and what it represented in terms of, of defining an era, I love that Out of My Mind was mm. included in it, mostly because y- you get these live Pearl Jam albums and you, you'll always see improv, you know, especially <laughs> during the binaural era, you know, oh, improv, yeah. improv. And you almost want to make a collect. And I'm, I, there's a lot of Pearl Jam fans that have gone out there and kind of collected all these various improvs and made compilation albums of them. It, it's a really cool way to experience Pearl Jam live in a much different way than you ever have. It's just completely devoid of structure. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, but out of my mind, it, it really, in a lot of ways, does exist as a, almost a supplemental B-side. It, it's it's, it's a, a, a live improv recorded at uh, the Fox Theater in Atlanta. It's that quintessential show from mm-hmm. 1994. And I've always appreciated it because it, it, it felt to me like it it truly was a b-side i don't know why it, it has always felt like this this interesting aside to that era and i loved that single when it came out because it, it felt like to me like it was offering something 
I had not heard before from the band, and uh, I I don't know. It uh, it was refreshing in a lot of ways. And Vitology was, in, and I've argued this in the past. It in many ways is Pearl Jam's white album. You know, if you talk about the Beatles, and this particular single to me is kind of a reflection of that with with not for you being a, a defining track from that album and then out of my mind being this wonderful beatles-esque extension about what pearl jam was like live at that point in time and so i, I don't know I, i've always appreciated it as kind of like a time capsule moment into the band's history well uh, out of my mind has been played four times yeah uh two of them were in 94 one was in 2009 and once was the last tour um, that we saw of these guys in 2018, um, one of the two Fenway shows, first of the two Fenway shows. Out of My Mind is such an interesting um, track because, yeah, it's an improv, but think about what he's saying and the time in which he's saying it. Like, he's telling you guys, I'm out of my fucking mind here. We're losing up here, guys. We, we, we need some sort of change of direction obviously we, we, they got that but what a way to kind of get into ed's head in an improv soundboard recording from a legendary show that you wouldn't have heard soundboard for another 25 years yeah you get the radio version but like the soundboard version right incredible great choice <clears throat> my number four i am mine i'm sticking with ryan act ah. now a song that i really pulled back from when I heard it as the lead single for Riot Act, it has grown significantly on me over the years. At the time, I was looking for like just another kind of rock and roll banger. And I'd kind of get what I was looking for and save you later, just from like a hard rock perspective. But as I grew older and wiser, I've come to really appreciate this music. And I would say more so than the music, I've come to really love the lyrics. I was not, and I've said this before, I was not in a place to get it but it's such a lovely message especially at the time coming off the heels of 9-11 to have that message and to pair it with down on the b-side which who knows why it was left off riot act we, we still can't figure that one out for any real reason um i think that there's a yin and yang there um musically speaking but then you have this, you know, you have to you have to live for yourself. You have to get over the bad and get to the good and think about yourself and live for yourself kind of thing. And to have both those songs, kind of the black and the white of the same coin, um, I think is a really strong way to send a message. And um, I think Down was a, a fan favorite as soon as I started playing it. Um, I think very similarly to how Ledbetter was received back in the day. If I, may, if I may. So I think I Am Mine as a single was super underrated and very, very good. Cannot disagree. Where are you going next? Number three. Last Kiss. Ooh. This is a... Uh, Bold choice. <laughs> Couple of covers. Uh, it, it, I know, man, but it, it's one of my favorite songs from uh, from that, that classic era of, of, of American pop music. That know, was a great from, time. The, the, the early 60s, you know. Well, no, the early 60s. Oh, I thought, well, was, I was uh, originally say, I thought, from yeah. okay. Fra Frankie Wilson and the Cavaliers uh, back in, in 64. And so it was one of my favorite 
oldies, you know, mm. right? That's what we used to call them, oldies. And I, I sometimes I feel like Pearl Jam's music will eventually replace oh what used to be oldies no. when we were young. I'm telling you. It's, I know it's going to happen. I just don't want to think well, about it. Well, like when we were young, like you put on a, a classic rock station and it would, they'd be playing like Zeppelin and, and, and uh, Leonard Skinner. Yeah, and right. Well, now. Hold it, on, loose Well, now the stuff we <laughs> love, you know, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Sami, you know, Alice in Chains, that's the stuff that you're going to hear on a classic rock station mixed in. And so to hear what I always thought was one of the more um, ambitious songs of this, the early 1960s in terms of, of content and tone mm -hmm. it, for Pearl Jam to deliver this song in a way that was so fresh and original it clearly was a success because it was one of their highest grossing singles in the history of their catalog I mean it was a a smashing success this particular this particular track from the band um, it's a tragic song which I think fits with the, the paradigm of a lot of Pearl Jam's music um, but when, when you look at uh, this particular single here it it became the number two track on the US Billboard Top 100 it was uh, a worldwide phenomenon it charted all over the place and looking I, I'm, I'm not going to say it was better than the original i don't necessarily think that but do there, it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something truly special about pearl jam's ability to take a a, a tragic pop single from the early 1960s and this is a grunge band i mean if you would have yeah. told me in 1993 these guys are going to do you know last kiss by frankie and the cavaliers i'd be, be laughing your face you know and, and by the way when they do it it's going to be a number one single <laughs> nobody would believe that and it happened and so it's really hard for me to dismiss the legacy that that their version of this song had and uh it, it's kind of a one of those the, those little underrated gems for me that it as a song i always loved as an oldie to mm. have my favorite band cover it I, I remember when i heard they were doing it, i was thinking oh, i can't wait for this you know and they, they nailed it so i think it's easy to um, both love and dismiss the song because we've heard it so many times yeah. that doesn't mean it's not a great pop song and they've done yeah. it splendidly and I think to this is it, it, could you could you argue this was 1964's version of Better Man but the, the, the yeah. tragedy I you know I, I, so and I think you know um, you didn't even touch on Soldier of Love which I think is a, a great super yeah. underrated song yeah um, that rockabilly cha-cha-cha beat thing mm -hmm. going on it's just a fun single overall mm -hmm. it's a great choice um, I'm gonna go next with Daughter ah. massive massive song on the A side of course in two live tracks on the B side that we've never gotten soundboard cuts of to my knowledge, ever. Blood Obviously, and, and, and Ledbetter? Blood and Ledbetter from Indio in 93 and Mesa, Arizona in 93. Now, Indio 93, pretty legendary as far as shows goes. You could argue that Coachella was born from this. It was. Um, yeah. I think the cut of Blood is great. Um, Ed at his blood-curdling best. His voice could mm -hmm. do it back then. The, the song sound... I wouldn't be surprised if this was your your uh, live cut for the blood week whenever that happens but it's just so damn good and it's and it's a sync too because what they've done recently is they've elongated the middle section to allow Ed time to kind of get his voice back for the last part of the song but um, on top of that then you got Ledbetter 
which is, you know, Maze Arizona 93, much less known uh, of a show, uh, but an incredible rendition of an iconic song. And I think at the time, this song, Ledbetter, was finding its own way up the charts despite not being a single itself. So you've got almost two singles in one, two live cuts of soundboard quality that you never have gotten before to this day, as far as I'm aware, I'm sure somebody has is going to tell me I'm wrong. And then Donner, which might have been the biggest song on the planet around that time. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful package of songs that it's almost hard to beat for me. But I, I have two more songs that I think are, or singles, I should say, that are a little better. But that, I think that's a fantastic group of songs. Nice. What do you got? Number two. Here we go. I'm going, uh, same era, go. Ooh. I'm going go, and I'll tell you why. First of all, it's arguably one of the best up-tempo tracks the band has ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, but Alone had never been heard before this. It was a previously unreleased track. It is, to me, at least at that time, it was the best B-side I'd ever heard. I, I, look, everybody loves Yellow Lead better. I understand that. Alone, to me, was it, it encapsulated everything about what a B-side was supposed to be. It just, it was this this perfect song. It, it, it's a B-side to me is like a, a black sheep track. You know, it, it's, it doesn't quite fit on an album, but you can see how it's still part of the family of that album. And I thought that alone was that, that wonderful, perfect articulation of what a B-side is supposed to be. It's one of my favorite Pearl Jam songs, period. And uh, to, to, to have arguably their best up-tempo track of that era of music, coupled with what I think is one of the best B-sides they've ever released, it's really hard for me to argue that this is not one of the best singles. Plus, the, the graphic, that the Red Go graphic mm. on the cover of the CD at the time with the, the clown mask that he has on, it, it's just great. I mean, the whole thing I thought was uh, just vintage Pearl Jam. Well, I'm right there with you. I got Go number two as well. Um, ah. you, you mean... You- Spoken about Go as the song itself. It's fantastic. Oh, it's, it's one of my favorite um, up-tempo songs. Um, it's just searing. So right, right out of the gate, that's amazing. You didn't even mention the lovely acoustic version of Elder the Woman behind the counter I in a small know, town with beautiful. alternate lyrics, but, mm-hmm. oh, by the way. I think it's it sounds super intimate, um, and I really, really like it. Uh, I almost kind of want to listen to that version more than the album version after hearing it uh, I wasn't that in forever and I forgot about it um, but then you mentioned the, the, the crown jewel uh, being alone um, I think I think this single is probably overlooked by many because of the time this came out uh, the world was already getting used to the inferno the typhoon if you will whatever you want to call it that is Pearl Jam and by this time the music world it didn't know what hit it. The band had been playing so many versus songs on the 10 tour at this point and the two albums and the, the two albums, and the tours sort of blend together, blended together and along with Vitalogy for that matter. And so I can imagine this single kind of getting lost in the shuffle, but you mentioned it and I think I agree with you. Um, and I, we might've said so on our favorite B-sides list. I believe we both said alone was number one and I absolutely adore this song. I've been fortunate enough to see it twice. Um, and to your point, it, you know, no one, unless you had been to a show or heard some sort of tape passed to you back in the old days, you know, passing tapes, 
you didn't you yeah when you got the single you go what the hell is this a song alone it had been played like 20 times live in the first few years of their existence but no one ever heard the song in a studio capacity and to hear that must have blown people's minds and still from that point on i'm looking at live footsteps that work right now it's been played 47 times total and over half of those were before the song even came out so you might have been like well, what is this song? I've never heard this song before. But you hadn't been to a show, you hadn't heard a, a tape. You you had a very limited chance to actually hear it live right. um, since then. They didn't play it from 94 to 2004. So just an unbelievable uh, package of songs that I think it's hard to beat, but we're going to try. Paul, what do you got for number one? So for number one, there's one single in Pearl Jam's history that they released where I worked harder than I ever had to acquire. Harder even than the think, albums but, themselves. What are we, we going to agree here? Hold on, let's see. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. For me, it, it's dissident. And I say that because ah. when this song came out, first of all, I love the track, but there were three different singles mm-hmm. that compiled the band's 1994 April 3rd concert in Atlanta, Georgia at the Fox Theater. And... I was obsessed because it, it it was soundboard quality recording of Pearl Jam Live. I mean, it, yeah, I had uh, back then the band promoted these uh, fans coming in recording mm-hmm. that stuff. But if you could get your hands on an A plus recording, a soundboard recording, it felt like a holy grail. And here was the band saying, "Hey, guess what? We're going to release Dissident, and you know what? We're going to release a show with it." It was the I, I've never worked harder to go out there and find singles from a band. Because to me, it was like, oh, I'll just buy that album. Why am I going to buy this? How many of the songs from the record? Is it like 10? (laughs) It's basically everything except for Whipping, Better Man, Satan's Bed, and Sonic Reducer. Across across three discs, Correct. And so I I actually have European import version, which has what is the equivalent of of the whole show, minus those couple of tracks. And it, 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 to, to this day, I look back, it's one of my most prized possessions in my Pearl Jam mm-hmm. catalog. It, it's, it, I love just pulling that thing out. It feels like a single and a bootleg all wrapped in one. It, it, it was a truly special release at the time. Um, everything from the packaging to the content to uh, the, the, uh, the nostalgia effect of looking back on it today to the, the fact that it, it's arguably one of the... Not only is it clearly the band agrees with this they re-released this show as a vault mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so and i thought the version back then was a great recording you know i didn't they even think better. it needed a re-release so I, it, it's for me it, it's hard to beat the package that came with that song as a single it's it was almost like christmas 10 times over with a single for me <laughs> well um i am not going to agree with you but i'll tell you why when we get to our honorable mentions uh, my number one is Jeremy. That's and cool. I say this because incredible A-side, probably the, the A-side, the single that launched the band. Yeah, if you if you didn't love Pearl Jam, Summer you, were 92, still, you were still buying that, that yeah, single. Yeah, this thing is on the radio. You're like, what? what like, I, 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 that, that was my experience. Summer 92, hanging out with friends picnic table radio on Ooh, what is that thing hadn't heard it before ascension uh, into the stratosphere so you know an an unbelievable a side and then you get the two b sides are ridiculous here (laughs) i mean are you kidding me 
footsteps recorded on, on Rockline in 92, um, the only version, quote unquote, studio, even though it wasn't a studio version, there isn't a studio version, technically speaking, of this song. We get footsteps for the first time in any capacity. And then you get Yell I Better, which is, I mean, we've talked about this. Everyone's talked about why or why not. Um, uh, did it not appear on 10? Um, I, I alluded to it earlier that it became its own single um, by virtue of this single. Um, some radio stations started playing the B-side of the Jeremy single and Ledbetter skyrocketed up the charts and has become basically the de facto show closer. The show doesn't end until Mikey says goodbye. That's kind of how this thing works. If you haven't been to a Pearl Jam show before. And <laughs> to have that hit you as a B-side studio version you, you may have heard it you may have been lucky enough to see the band in the first you know year and a half of their infancy and then you hear this and you go what oh mama what is this so to have those three things just the level of quality of both of all three of those coming at you on one disc unbelievable for me so i, I gotta make it number one it's hard to argue with that. I mean, if, if, if you gave me another one, that be the one I'd have. <laughs> well, we have honorable mentions here, Paul. So let me, let me, I'm going to quickly go through a few here, um, and I'll let you hit a couple for yourself. Now, Dissident was interesting for me. Dissident I had, and I thought to myself, am I cheating? Because there are basically three discs putting together an entire show, more or less, <laughs> and technically speaking, they're EPs. Do I feel bad about that? I'm like, you know what? If I do it, Paul does, I'm going to get called out. So I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but I edited myself, but I agree with you. It's in, it's phenomenal um, to the point of not having soundboard of 94 Atlanta forever, except for that. I also thought um, to a similar extent, Animal, same thing. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of tracks from that same um, show. Oceans, very similar. You had... Um, Two soundboard quality recordings from Pink Pop 92, another legendary show that we had not gotten a soundboard quality release until probably YouTube when someone posted the, the TV episode that was taped on VCR back in the day, which is not as good as this. So Oceans, you've got Merkin Ball, you've got Off He Goes, you got Wish List, all amazing combinations of songs um, that I think just didn't quite make the cut, but Excellent, excellent, excellent. What do you what do you got here? Same list as you. Um, obviously, with uh, Jeremy added on to it, mm -hmm. but uh, th there's a lot of great singles, tremendous B sides. Um, I I've always wondered why. You know, we we, we had uh, a great guest on last week mm -hmm. talking about uh, the skyscrape, and and you know, you, you look at the March Madness and and sad. As, mm. as one of those songs, I mean, it, it's hard to think of the binaural era and, and thinking about a song like Sad that wasn't necessarily, I mean, you know, you look at a, a track like um, Nothing As It Seems and, and you get this alternate mix of insignificance. I mean, it, it, for us to have waited until Lost Dogs to experience Sad, I, to me, it remains, I think, one of the strangest oddities. Like I just think. add and, Sad to that yeah, single, sad. and it's unbelievable. <laughs> right. And, and to me, I, I almost feel like that would have been 
the modern version of Pearl Jam's Jeremy release where you had nothing as it seems, which is to me was, was a defining track of binaural plus in terms of Pearl Jam's 2.0, if you will. And then to have what is arguably their best B side post yield, uh, I thought would have been pretty cool, but all the ones that you mentioned are, are really hard to, to not factor into the equation. I think they would, they would all make an honorable mention list, if not their own top five. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, so guys, tell us what you think. Um, what did we get wrong? What did we get right? Where do you lie? Um, I see arguments for, for many of these songs to be in the top five. So you let us know, chime in on the, uh, on the Facebook or the Instagram post, give us a shout, let us know what you think. Uh, and we look forward to hearing that, but until then we're going to move on to our lyric of the week. Paul, you alluded to it. We talked about Jeff earlier. Let's choose a Jeff song. Let's choose Jeff song from Binaural. Nothing as it seems. Okay, Paul, nothing as it seems. The uh, the bridge, the interlude, whatever you want to call it. Um, what do you think? This song to me was always a, a treat. I say that because when I first heard it, I, I could not think of anything other than Pink Floyd. It uh, <laughs> To me, it, it's the closest thing that Pearl Jam um, has ever come to a Pink Floyd song. It's, a, I mean, Mike's jamming on this song is, is just off the charts. Uh, but as a composition, when you, when you think about what this song represented, it was the debut single off of Binaural, which um, not a track you'd have thought would be, right? It's pretty long, actually, as, as a single. Um, yeah. I would have thought something, you know, Light Years or uh, uh, maybe... Um, break or fall or, or grievance god's dice those are the types of songs i would have thought would have been mm-hmm. released uh, but we got this curveball instead and so, <laughs> uh, it was extremely um unstructured in a lot of ways uh, it had this expressionist it, it felt like a van gogh painting hmm. a, a, as a song to me it was very eclectic and uh, i i look back at this song with a lot of fondness um it's very dark it, there's a brooding element to it that's reminiscent of their earlier music, but in a, delivered in a far more mature form, uh, both in terms of musicianship and lyrical delivery as well. And um, it's just a representation of what I thought is a perfect articulation and characterization of binaural. Uh, Eddie has said in interviews, you know, I, I don't know why nobody wanted to buy that record. Um, and I could see why he thinks that when, the introduction to that album was this song, you know, I mean, you would think that everybody would fall in love with this album based on a song like that. It, you go to a Pearl Jam show live and you hear Mike rip into this riff. It's mm. impossible to not just, you know, grab hands with the people around you and be like, Oh my God, like what we are, <laughs> we're here. I mean, this is live Pearl Jam right now. Uh, and and it's usually, you know, you get these, these theme or um, motifs really of, of, uh, 
just lamentation, um, despair, isolation, alienation, a lot of the things that have come to define a lot of earlier Pearl Jam's uh, music, but at the same time are grafted in a very personal way for Jeff's Montana upbringing. And it's, it's a firsthand account of something that I think a lot of folks can, can relate to, but I love the fact that it comes from Jeff and uh, it, it's very dark. It's heavy. It, it's a fantastic song. And all of that is very, very, um, present, I guess is the right word. When you, when you look at a set of lyrics like this, it's a song about not really understanding what's going on with somebody else. I mean, I look, I look at these, these lyrics here, saving up a sunny day, which is a great lyric, by the way, uh, something maybe two-tone, anything of his own, a chip off the cornerstone, who's kidding, rainy day, a one-way ticket headstone, an occupation overthrown from a whisper through a megaphone. You get this dichotomy that keeps reinforcing itself through the, lyric, the, the, the lyrical content. And this, this judgment without an inherent understanding about what this other person is really going through. And I think that really characterizes a lot of what is happening in our country today. This, this ability to judge others without truly being able to relate with that person's experience. I go back to, to um, you know, 2016, where a lot of folks just labeled and judged anybody who voted GOP at that point in time without having an iota of understanding about what might have, what might, what, what drives a person to vote in the direction that he or she votes in, you know, and shouldn't we, shouldn't we take a more empathetic understanding approach and say, okay, you don't like that vote. Well, did you, did you stop to think what might've compelled a person to vote? You find that vote to be so audacious and um, unacceptable to you, right? the audacity of a person to cast a vote in that direction. Okay. You don't live in that person's shoes. Have you bothered to think what would push a person in that direction? Shouldn't All that questions be part? that Jeff was asking himself in his interview yeah, with Jeff Ryan. You know I mean? It, shouldn't that, that be part of the, the uh, self-diagnosis of a national political party? of a familial entity, of an individual entity. And, and this ability to kind of take a step back and say, hey, let's take the judgment out of the equation and really try and think about what's going on here because, and this harkens back to the title of the song, nothing is always as it seems, you know? And I, I think it's, it's an underrated track amongst kind of the peripheral Pearl Jam bass. Obviously, the, dar- the diehard fans have a, a great reverence for the song, but those who haven't necessarily connected with the band with the same degree of intensity post-Yield, I think that's a fan base that if they could rediscover Pearl Jam again, this would be a song that, would, that could proverbially be a, a gateway. You know? No, I, I agree. And I think you, know, you hit the nail on the head talking about nothing is as it seems. I mean, this song has always been a bit vague to me, a bit complex, a bit perplexing. Um, musically, I've always bonded to it for kind of some easy reasons. Um, that being, I love Mike McCready, but yeah, brooding, dark. Um, the section here that we're talking about specifically, you know, for me, it's really the apex of the reveal in the song. The idea of 
living in dark times, growing up in an abusive uh, family, perhaps, or living in a dangerous area where there's violence and you can't escape because your family is too poor to move out of the area, something along those lines, perhaps. The thought of dreaming of a better day, a sunny day, when all that negative shit finally gets put to bed, but then it's the hope that kills you. It's always the hope that kills you, even in sports, right? It's the hope that kills you. Oh, we're going to win it this year? No. Something, something happens, right? All that positivity and hope makes for makes way for realism. Coming back down to earth, waking up, whatever you want to call it. Who's kidding? Bang, rainy day. The subject has been kind of shocked back to their shitty, depressing reality. And surely now they're headed directly toward what they thought they were headed toward before their hopeful dream. And it's it's taunting. It's almost it's, it's taunting them. Just a whisper through a megaphone. You're coming back to this hell, man. And it's it's this is a really dark song. You said it. it's dark. It's brooding. And I know Jeff has explained that has a lot to do with um, the parts of of growing up that he thought he had suppressed um, back before, and which is why I mentioned you know possible family abuse and and anybody who's been able to decipher the Jeff Ament code of his lyrics. His lyrics are always code. Um, if you're able to decipher that and kind of get to kind of what I think he's getting at, then this song should should hit you um, in a very specific way. Um, or if you know somebody who's kind of gone through something like this, um, there are dark days, there are sunny days, and I think the uh the balance of these heavy heavy lyrics and mike soaring his guitar is a great compliment to each other and i think we should hear mike soar in our live kind of okay paul live cut of the week Nothing as it seems. I'm excited to go back to 2000. Where are we going? We're going to Albuquerque, actually. Albuquerque, um, New Mexico. Yeah. Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, there's a personal attachment to this particular version for me. I, okay. I actually, I actually drove cross country with my cousin, and uh, we we took the ten all the way across the. the uh, uh, by the way, to those outside of California, the ten equals. I interstate 10, 10. Or interstate I 10. 10 all the way across yes. the country we, we are California. we are cartoons of ourselves if you uh, know the californian sketch on snl the 10 continue so, sorry uh, we, we we cut through uh las cruces new mexico mm-hmm. and uh, oh, I famous remember 1995 right yeah and, and <laughs> <laughs> that this whole um albuquerque scene at the time i remember thinking to myself i, I didn't grow up in montana like jeff did but just going through that area and and hitting Albuquerque at the time, I remember thinking to myself, man, this is really a world apart for me. This is not something that I've uh, truly, I, I didn't understand it. I couldn't connect to it. Um, I felt alienated from it in a way that left me feeling disjointed and discomforted. And uh, it's not that I couldn't wait to leave. But I definitely was having trouble finding my footing. And I feel like this song really captured what that feeling was like and what it must feel like for somebody growing up in an environment like that. So I, I think that this particular performance really captures that very, very well. 
Um, I, I believe that, uh, I want to say green habit picked it as it's, it's best cut of the, of the track as well. The green habit Hmm. compilation, which, uh, there's not a lot of, um, parallels between (laughs) green habit and myself. I mean, there's a couple of songs here and there where we, 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 there are some parallels, but for the most part, I usually find, uh, tracks to be, I, I find better versions of tracks to me mm-hmm. than the ones that I find represented there. And that's not in any way, shape or form uh, meant to be a, a disparaging. He's calling you out green habit. No, I'm not. I'm not. I mean, it, this is so all of this is subjective, but this is one of those moments where I felt like I, I completely understand why that was the version that was chosen. And so it's a fantastic performance. It really excels and it's a great cut. And we were privileged and uh, very fortunate to receive a bunch of soundboard cuts from the 2000 binaural tour. And I thought that this was a great version of that song. And there's a lot of honorable mentions for it, by the way. Um, the one off uh, Touring Band 2000, I thought was fantastic as well. That one came from uh, the, the Key Arena in Seattle from that very same tour in November. And uh, one of my favorite versions is off of live on, uh, what is it, 10 Lakes? which yes. I thought was, was fantastic as well. Obviously that's, that's six years later. Uh, that's from Adelaide, uh, gosh, uh, Adelaide. Thank you. Australia. So th- th- those are some standout versions as well. All right. Well, let's head to Albuquerque, New Mexico. I think for the first time, October 20th, 2000. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh. 
Mike's guitar sounds like half drunk or some sort of southern drawl the way he uses his delay and wah. I love it. It is fantastic. It's different than any other way I've heard this song performed before. Um, I think I think the song actually sounds cooler because the tempo is slower than the album. That is awesome. I'm into that. Uh, I know that Jeff wrote the song, but I think it was always made for Mike. I mean, he told him to kind of fill in the gaps, but you know. God damn it, he did. He filled in those gaps. Um, this song for me, this version just lurches forward. There's like a lurch to it. Um, I find that that Ed is really inside himself, kind of saving himself, perhaps, maybe for later in the show. But I think it works. I think it's really cool for this, for this song. So I'm into it. Um, I've always really liked Jeff's upright bass play as well. And I think on this um song, 
it sounds particularly atmospheric and there's a weird kind of it sounds very much like the record it's got that droney atmospheric almost like super bass theremin thing going on almost and it's just a, a fantastic uh performance i think the binaural songs sounded amazing on this tour uh, i know there's um, a lot to be desired when it comes to how the whole bootlegs sound sure. um, and maybe the guitar tones on most songs are We've maybe a little too. That. Yeah. But, you know, that said, this one soars and uh, I really enjoy when they, they pick out um, a smaller city and do something special like this. Yeah. So Really enjoyed this one. Good shout. Really enjoyed it. Um, all right, gang. That is the show for this week. Um, we hope you've enjoyed this show, and we hope you, you'll chime in online with your five best singles. The entire, the entire single, the A side, the B side. There is no C side unless you're in another dimension. And uh, what else? Yeah. Follow us on the socials. Rate, review, subscribe. And uh, until we listen to the next one together. You will sing too. The state of love and trust. Yeah.